Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 183, Challenge Unmet. This episode of the Trinity's podcast is a follow-up to episode 124, which was over a year ago. That episode is called A Challenge to Jesus is God Apologists. In that episode and the blog post, which has the argument all laid out and explains the premises, I challenge people who go around saying that the Bible teaches that Jesus is God to say what, if anything, is wrong with this argument. If you don't have an answer to this argument and you're going around saying that Jesus is God, you probably are unclear about what you mean. Jesus is God could mean a bunch of different things. The deity of Christ could mean a bunch of different things. It's kind of a weasel phrase. Its ambiguity is one of the things that people like the most about it. But when you say that Jesus is God, one very natural interpretation, and I'll explain why it's natural later in the episode, one natural interpretation is that you're asserting Jesus to be God himself. You're saying that they're one and the same, like you and yourself are the same, like George Bush and W are the same, like Vladimir Putin and Pootyput are the same. This is not similarity that we're talking about. It's numerical sameness. It's the relation that a thing can only bear to itself. People will actually sometimes say that Jesus is God himself, and they'll interchange the word Jesus and the word God in a way that makes it clear that they think those terms co-refer. So we're just referring to one being in two different ways. The beauty of this argument is twofold. First, it's clearly a valid argument. That's to say that if every premise were to be true, then the conclusion would have to be true. There isn't any mistake in the reasoning here. You're not going to find a fallacy that's being committed. Admittedly, it's not the easiest argument to understand, but if you do get your head around it, you will see that it's a valid argument. Again, if all the premises were true, then the conclusion would have to be true. So are each of the premises true? If each of the premises are true, then you have to also agree with the conclusion, which says this, Jesus is not a God. Here's the argument. Some of the premises are crystal clear, and some of them will take a little bit of explaining. Premise one is that God and Jesus differ. That is, there is some qualitative difference about them. There's something that's true of one that's not true of the other. It's not just that they're perceived differently, but there really is something different about them, such as that God sent his only son, whereas Jesus did not send his only son. Jesus doesn't have a son. Premise two, things which differ are two, that is, are not numerically identical. This premise is a self-evident truth, like two plus two is four. The intuition behind it is that nothing can be and not be the same way at the same time. A thing can be different than itself at two different times. If you grow, then at time one, you might be five feet tall, and at time two, you might be five feet two inches tall. And of course, things can be very similar, but still differ. For instance, so-called identical twins. They may be hard to distinguish, but of course, there are going to be some differences between them. Yeah, but if we're talking about just one thing, and at one time, it can't be and not be the same way. That's obvious. So if you're wondering if some A and B are the same or not, and you find out that at one time they're different, okay, you know they're not the same thing. 
whatever this A and B are, we're talking about two different things, unless one of the terms fails to refer at all. The preliminary conclusion, step three, which follows from one and two, therefore, God and Jesus are two, that is, they're not numerically identical. Step four of the argument is another premise. It says, for any X and any Y, X and Y are the same God, only if X and Y are not two, that is, they are numerically identical. This premise says that to be the same God requires being the same being. Well, sure, to be the same fill-in-the-blank, whatever that is, requires being the same being. If A and B are the same horse, they've got to be the same being. If A and B are the same rock, they've got to be the same being. If A and B are the same human being, they've got to be the same being. This is a self-evident truth. Step five is another conclusion. It follows from three and four. Therefore, God and Jesus are not the same God. Right? So to be the same God, they have to be numerically identical. But we know they're not numerically identical because they have differed. Step six is another premise. There is only one God. Step seven is another conclusion that falls from five and six. Therefore, either God is not a God or Jesus is not a God. If there's only one God and God and Jesus are two, then one or both have to fail to be a God because they can't both be because there's only one God. Step eight is another premise that says God is a God. Step nine is the final conclusion it follows from seven and eight. Therefore, Jesus is not a God. If they can't both be a God, because there's only one God, and God is a God, then Jesus is not a God. Now, the useful thing about this argument is that it only has a limited number of premises, and some of them any Christian as such is committed to, and the other ones are self-evident, so that anyone should be committed to them. Which ones does the Christian have to accept? That would be 1, 6, and 8. So the Christian has to accept that God and Jesus differ. A Christian has to accept 6, there's only one God. And a Christian has to accept that God is a God. Capital G, God is a God. I mean, 8 is true by definition, but it's also true according to the Bible. 6, there's only one God, is insisted on by the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament. And one is implied throughout the New Testament, because there are many things true of Jesus that are not true of God, and many things true of God that are not true of Jesus. Do you think that God is triune? Maybe you do, but you don't think that Jesus is triune. So there's your difference between Jesus and God. You have to accept premise one. Maybe you think that God is essentially immortal, and Jesus is not essentially immortal, because at one time he died. Right, then you have to agree with one. If Jesus and God have ever differed, if Jesus and God just could in principle differ, then they must be two beings. Okay, but those are all of the biblical premises. The other two are self-evident that a thing can't differ from itself at a time. So whenever two things differ, they really are two things. And then the most difficult premise, I think, says that for any X and Y to be the same God, they have to be the same thing. That is the same being. Well, yeah, a God is a being. It's a certain type of being. So if they're the same God, they have to be the same being. Just like if X and Y are the same planet, they have to be the same thing. Mr. or Ms. Thinking Christian, because you accept the Bible, you're committed to three of the premises. 
because you're a reasonable being able to discern what is obviously true by using the mind that God gave you, you're committed to the remaining two premises. But then the train has left the station. And it's arrived at its destination. The destination is that Jesus is not a God. I hope you were aboard. If not, you may need to mull over the meaning of premises two or four until you get each one. Now, even though I explained back in podcast 124 that this is not an argument against the Trinity, several commenters online have urged that surely just distinguishing between being and person shows what is wrong with this argument. But interestingly, it doesn't. Just wanting that to be your solution doesn't make it a solution. I know it's hard to let go of the standard evangelical apologist script about the Trinity, like it solves all the problems, but you really have to let go of that script if you're going to properly think through this argument. Again, it doesn't help to just let loose with a big old bunch of proof texts. Some apologists back up to the comments thread with a big truck heaped high with proof texts. Ah, there they go. Big nice pile of them. But that's not to the point unless any of those texts show that one or more of the premises is false. If all the premises are true and you agree that they're true, you, my friend, are committed to the conclusion. Is this a conclusion that a Trinitarian can accept? Well, it depends on how you understand the Trinity. Some Trinitarians will deny two, which I think is nuts because two is very clearly true. Some Trinitarians will deny four, which I think that's misguided because four is self-evident in my view, although there have been philosophers who have denied it. Some Trinitarians will deny six, that there's only one God. I don't think that's a good idea. On the other hand, some Trinitarians will just accept the argument as sound. So yeah, we don't think Jesus is a God. It's only God that is the Trinity, which is a God. Jesus isn't that. Jesus is a, quote, person within God. And a person within God maybe can be called God, but isn't going to be a God. You can be a Trinitarian and accept this argument as sound. Indeed, I think all Christians should accept it as sound, whatever they think about the Trinity. As I said, though, some Trinity theories will give you a reason, if you commit to that theory, to deny one of the premises. So it's not an anti-Trinitarian argument? Is it an anti-Christian argument? Of course it's not. I'm a Christian, and the argument is urging you to commit to what the Bible teaches, along with a couple of self-evident and necessary truths. Is it an argument against the deity of Christ? Yes and no. You can accept this as a sound argument and think that Christ is divine in some literal sense. You could accept this as a sound argument and think that Christ has a divine nature. What you can't do is accept this as a sound argument and think that Jesus just is God himself. That is, that Jesus and the one God are numerically identical. Now, people steeped in historical theology, I think, don't take that view. I think Catholics, Orthodox, Reformed people who have read a lot of historical theology and the ancient creeds, 
I don't think they are, at least I don't think they should say that Jesus just is God himself. That is, I don't think they actually mean to identify the two. The people I was aiming at, like it said in the title of the original post, are what I call Jesus is God apologists. People who just lead with this as the main point. This is the whole point of Christianity, that Jesus is God. And they do seem to mean by that, most of the time, they're identical. Some of them suppose that they're just saying more simply what the ancient Catholic tradition says. I don't think that's right. I don't think it boils down to this. But anyway, they are identifying Jesus and God. I am claiming that that is a confusion. You're confusing what are obviously two beings. You've got this theology that you're reading into Scripture is causing you to misread Scripture. What these Jesus is God apologists do is they throw out a bunch of texts which allegedly imply that Jesus and God are numerically one, that the one just is the other, so that we're using co-referring names here. My dear friend, do you realize that in making this claim, you're implying that our premise one here is false? You are implying that it's false that Jesus and God differ, because a thing can't differ from itself, either in eternity or at a particular time. It's self-evident that nothing can be and not be some way at some time. You don't want to deny one. Surely, even though you're going around saying that Jesus is God, you already believe one, that Jesus and God differ, and rightly so. You think there's been some time when God was one way and Jesus was not, or vice versa. One example of their differing in but the smallest way is enough to show that they're two, that they're not numerically identical. So honestly, denying one is foolish, whether by God we mean the Trinity or the Father. Obviously, Jesus is going to differ from either one. So you're wasting time by piling on proof texts which allegedly imply one. They had better not imply one, because it's presupposed in the whole New Testament that Jesus and God differ. And so if the New Testament is going around implying one, you're saying that the New Testament is incoherent that these writers are simply confused about Jesus and God. Of course, they're misreading the scriptures. The things they say only God can do are clearly things that God might empower someone else to do, like walk on water, heal the sick, serve as an atoning sacrifice, or forgiving sins. Even being addressed as, quote, God, or being described as God or as a God, doesn't imply that you're the one God. Don't take my word for it. Search the scriptures and see if it's so. Again, I think all Christians should accept this argument. I think it's a forge on which to hammer out a coherent view about God and Jesus. It doesn't beg any questions, nor does it involve any weird speculations. About the conclusion, you have to keep in mind how little it says. It says that Jesus is not a God, which is to say that Jesus is not divine in exactly the sense that the one God is divine. The lowercase word God in this argument is used unequivocally. It means being the sort of thing which the one God, Yahweh, is. Whatever it takes to be Yahweh, that's what it is to be a God in this argument. And of course, pointing out that God is a God does not imply that there are others. If you're an only child of your parents, you are still a child of your parents, right? When the Trinity's podcast returns, I'll discuss the one substantial answer that I have received from a Jesus is God apologist to this argument.
is one, Jesus is God apologist who has taken the challenge seriously and offered a brief and preliminary but serious answer. And that's Dr. James Anderson of Reformed Theological Seminary. He steps up to the plate and in a post on his blog, I've got a link for that on this episode at trinities.org, he puts his finger on what I think is the most deniable premise, which is premise four. That is, for any X and Y, X and Y are the same God, only if X and Y are not two. That is, they have to be numerically identical. You could paraphrase it as, being the same God requires being the same being, the same entity. I think that's self-evident. Of course, it's not asserted by the Bible, so if your main objective is to defend you know, direct assertions of the Bible, this isn't going to be one of the things that you're going to be concerned about. Yeah, but if it's really self-evident, you know, it's like two plus two is four, it's still foolish and irrational to deny it. What Dr. Anderson does is he points out that there are very smart philosophers who have given a principled reason to deny something like our premise four. And that principled reason is the metaphysics of material objects. If you've done any reading about recent Trinity theories, you may know that Dr. Michael Ray of the University of Notre Dame and Dr. Jeffrey Brower, philosophy department at Purdue, have suggested that there's something going on like this in the Trinity. I'm not going to go into all that now. I have a paper which I'll link on the blog post if you're interested in hearing about that whole approach. But anyway, as for the metaphysics of material objects, they think that you can have non-identical things that are to be counted as the same physical object. One example that Ray gives is an object which he thinks is both a statue and a pillar. You're supposed to imagine those Greek maidens that are pillars on the Parthenon in ancient Athens. So there's a statue of a, of a beautiful young lady there, and then there's also a pillar there. And he says the statue and the pillar have to be distinct. They can't be identical because one could exist without the other. And yet he thinks they're to be counted as one because they're composed by the same material. Now, this is not a stupid theory. It's an interesting theory. It's a theory that tries to make sense about how we think about things like statues. It's very disputable. A lot of philosophers would say there can't be non-identical physical objects in the same place at the same time, and they would both weigh 500 pounds. But then if you weigh both of them together, you just get 500 pounds and not 1,000 pounds. So on the level of metaphysics, it's very disputable. It is one of the theories in the field, though. What Ray and Brower do is they suggest that something like this is going on in the case of the Trinity. So there's something analogous to matter in God, something that plays a role in the Trinity like matter plays when we're dealing with physical objects, and that this matter simultaneously constitutes or composes the three different persons. And so because they're composed of that same matter, they're to be counted as one although they are non-identical. That's their view. Again, I'm not going to take the time to critique this Trinity theory, but it is a Trinity theory out there. This is not what James Anderson says, though. Part of his reply is this. The lump Athena example, so that's an example where you've got the lump of clay and then you've got the statue made of that lump of clay. The idea is that those are non-identical things and yet they are the same material object or something like that. He says, the lump Athena example shows that this assumption, he's talking about my premise for, is at least disputable, if not clearly false. Well, it's going way too far to say it's clearly false. He continues, on account of cases like this, some philosophers have argued for a metaphysical relation known as numerical sameness without identity. 
True. He's right about that. He continues, I therefore suggest that premise four of Tuggy's argument is disputable in the same way that premise four of my parallel argument is disputable. To be clear, I'm not suggesting that the metaphysical relationship between Jesus and God is the same as the metaphysical relationship between Athena and Lump. In other words, it's not that they're composed of the same batch of clay. Well, good. It's good that he's not saying that it's the same relation. He says, I offer the parallel only as a way of disclosing the vulnerable premise in Tuggy's argument. Challenge met? I don't think that does meet the challenge. Even if the general principle that for any X and any Y, X and Y are the same, whatever, only if X and Y are not two, even if there are plausibly counterexamples to that, the kind of counterexamples he's gesturing at wouldn't apply to my premise four. Because it doesn't say for anything, whatever, it says for any X and Y, if they're the same God, then they have to be not two. That is, they have to be the same being. Now, in a follow-up post, Dr. Anderson makes clear that, no, he doesn't accept the Ray-type metaphysics about material objects, where things can be non-identical and yet the same material thing. Dr. Anderson says this, As I suggested in my book, the relationship between God and each person of the Trinity isn't exactly numerical identity. But from our vantage point, it may be conceptually indistinguishable from numerical identity. It's analogous to Ray's numerical sameness without identity in the sense that each divine person can be logically distinguished from the Godhead and from the other two persons, yet each is numerically the same God. If you tell me you have trouble conceptualizing that, my immediate response is, no kidding, are you surprised? So my take on Dale's original argument is that either his premise for is false or there's a concealed equivocation in the argument which we're not in a position, epistemically speaking, to identify and articulate. So in the end, I'm not quite sure I understand the full impact of his response. If he's just saying that the argument seems to be sound, but God is so mysterious that I'm not going to accept a conclusion, that doesn't seem to be enough. He grants that Jesus and God are not identical. Okay, well then the argument should be perfectly fine, according to him, up through step three. Why doesn't he just accept the argument as sound then? He's a Trinitarian, right? So shouldn't he say that Jesus is not a god? A god has to be a trinity, according to the Trinitarian. So I'm not totally clear why Dr. Anderson doesn't just accept the argument as sound. He goes on to suggest that I'm sort of more of a rationalist, to paraphrase, like I have greater confidence in human reason than he does. I'm not sure that that's true. He goes on to say, a further significant difference, which accounts in large measure for our divergent assessments of his original argument, is that I consider the biblical witness to the deity of Christ, that is, that the Son is divine in the same sense that the Father is divine, to be far more clear and compelling than he does. Yes, amen to that. But even given what he's just said, technically he can accept the argument as sound. If the Son is divine in the same sense as the Father, okay, that might be so. But the conclusion is that Jesus is not a God, which means he's not divine in the same sense as the one God. Now, I think the one God just is the Father, but he can say what he said and still accept the argument. Good luck getting the New Testament to make this assertion that Jesus has the same degree, the same quality of divinity as God. What the Jesus is God apologists do is they just go straight for identity. And I think Dr. Anderson is right to not do that. However, the argument from the Bible to full divinity is going to be tricky, given Dr. Anderson's views.
So if he wants to just make a Mysterian reply to the argument, that's one thing. But I think the main thrust of his answer was to try to cast doubt on my premise four. And I don't think what he said is really adequate to cast doubt on premise four. What he says in his follow-up blog post, in a part that I didn't read just now, is that doesn't all the justification for my premise four depend on that it's an instance of a more general principle for any X and for any Y than for any F. If X and Y are the same F, then X just is Y and vice versa. I guess I do think that that one is also self-evident. And I completely understand that there are philosophers who have disagreed with it. I think, though, that Dr. Anderson is placing too much weight on that fact. And the reason is, there are quite a few truly self-evident truths, things that every sane person knows, which have been denied by famous philosophers. There have been a number of famous philosophers, East and West, who asserted that there's only one thing, there's only one reality. They claim that it's impossible that there be more than one thing. Okay, but even though super smart philosophers have gone around and said this and argued for it, and maybe you haven't grappled with those arguments, I think they're still abundantly justified in thinking that there are many realities. For instance, you and me. There have been philosophers who deny that any event ever causes any other. People have denied that we know anything about the world around us. There's a famous living philosopher now who thinks that some contradictions can be true. Another recent philosopher who's as famous as philosophers can get within philosophy has suggested that every possible world is just as real as the world we inhabit. Now, I think all of these claims are barking mad. So why do smart people deny them? Well, they get theorizing and they find at a certain point that their theory requires them to deny one of these things. And that's how it is with the metaphysics of material objects. The first thing that Ray or Brower would say in defense of their view about that is that the other views are also strange, possibly even paradoxical, but at least counterintuitive. And so, yes, this solution to the problems is strange, but all the solutions are strange. Strange is one thing, but going against common sense is another. And I think that this principle, if we're talking about distinct beings, we can't be talking about the same God. I think that is part of common sense. And I'll also say this, I think Dr. Anderson is engaging in special pleading. Some time ago, I wrote a story in a blog post designed to bring this point out. I'm going to go ahead and read that story to you now because I think it's fun. and I think it makes the point well enough. And lest you get lost in all the details of it, I'll tell you the point in advance also. The point is that it's reasonable for us if we find out about a being that it's not identical to Yahweh, it's reasonable for us to conclude that it's not the same God as Yahweh. This seems really obvious in the case in my story, but I don't really think it's any less obvious in the case of Jesus and God. Special pleading is where you're applying a different standard to your own theory just because it's your theory. You're just giving it a preference that you wouldn't give to any other speculation just because it's the theory that you have. So it's a kind of arbitrariness in a defensive move. That's what I mean, anyway, by calling it special pleading. My story is called A Case of Progressive Revelation. The new kid at the high school seemed somehow different. He seems spiritual, mused Dell. I wonder if he's a Christian, wondered Jimmy. Let's ask him. Jimmy and Dell walked toward the school cafeteria, resolved to talk to the new kid and maybe even engage in a little lunchtime evangelism. 
they sat down at his table and introduced themselves. My name's Chad. Where am I from? Oh, you've probably never heard of it. Jimmy and I noticed the other day that you bowed your head for a moment before eating lunch. Were you praying? Are you a Christian? Jimmy and I are. I was praying, yes, answered Chad, but I'm not a Christian. I'm a Quatronian. Jimmy and Dell looked at each other. Probably you haven't heard of this religion. It's fairly new, and there aren't very many of us. We worship the one true God, Quatro. Oh, said Jimmy, as he struggled to process this news. Who is this Quatro, exactly? Tell us more. He's the one true God. He sent us the prophet New Guy and inspired our sacred book, The Way It Is, which was written by New Guy and some of our other leaders. He pulled out a well-worn paperback from his backpack and held it out. Jimmy took it and examined the back cover. Well, I guess we disagree about God then, suggested Dell. Jim and I believe in the God of the Bible. You mean Yahweh? Yes, piped Jimmy, looking up from the book. Oh, I don't know how much we disagree about. You see, Quattro and Yahweh are the same God. Our religions differ in some ways, yes, but we worship the same God. Perhaps this is what your holy book says, but we'll have to disagree about that, suggested Dell. I hope not, replied Chad. Jim sat up straight, excited. This is going to be interesting, he handed back the book. Dell shifted to lawyer mode. Did this quattro befriend Abraham and later send the prophet Moses to the descendants of Abraham? Absolutely not. Quatronian theology positively denies that quattro ever did any such things. Did Quattro send his only son to us to teach us about himself and to die for the sins of the human race? Absolutely not. Way it is, chapter 17, quotes Quattro as saying, I am the son of no one, nor do I have a son to send, nor is there any son within me. Anyone who says that he has a son, that's not me. Okay, pressed Dell. Our God revealed himself to Abraham, sent Moses, and then later sent us his son. So clearly, we're not talking about the same God here. Not the same being, no. But the same God, yes, insisted Chad, waving the book. Dell looked confused, but remained silent. Jim came to his rescue. Chad, how do we know that this quattro is even supposed to be divine? Dell and I have read in various mythologies about so-called gods who are created, who die, and who do terrible deeds like deception, murder, and rape. Oh, quattro isn't like that. He has all the divine qualities. Is he eternal? Yes. Uncreated creator? Yes. Perfect in every way, even morally? Yes. And yet he didn't send Moses and Jesus? No. Well, we Christians believe there's only one God. You're alleging that there's another one, but that can't be in our view. No, 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 no. Quattro is a different being than Yahweh. Yes, the differences we've discussed prove that. But he's the same God as Yahweh. That's absurd, declared Dell. Any God just is a certain being. If we're talking about different beings, we're talking about different gods. Suppose we learn that in your country, every marriage is monogamous. And then we find out that your dad is married and has a wife named Chrissy. And we also learn that he has a wife named Sissy. We know then that his one wife is called both Chrissy and Sissy. No, you don't, objected Chad. What you know is that my dad has one wife. But for all you know, Chrissy and Sissy are the same wife, but different women. But any wife just is a certain woman, shot Dell. 
That's what you say. I don't have to accept your controversial theories about wives and women. Theories? Dell's mouth hung open, and he was red in the face. He's right, you know, said Jimmy. I mean, he's right about the God case, whether or not he's right about the wife case. Jimmy, how can you say that? Dell, you need to read some more philosophy. There are philosophers who think that a lump of clay and a statue made of it are different form-matter compounds, but the same material object. Well, I think they're wrong. Perhaps they are, but this calls into question the general principle that if some X and Y are the same F, then X is an F, Y is an F, and X just is Y. So? Dell threw up his hands and stared unkindly at his friend. Chad looked on, amused by this discord in the Christian camp. The divine nature, we know, is far, far beyond us. Sure, we know some things about it, like that it includes omniscience, eternality, uncreatedness, and such, but there is far more that we don't know about it. Only a fool would say that he understands God completely. So? So how can we rule out that different beings can be the same God? Dell looked distressed, but remained silent. We've been told that this quattro is eternal, uncreated, and perfect, and that he's a god. I don't suppose we can just assert that he's a fiction and leave it at that. It sounds like he could be both real and divine. And I take it, Jimmy looked at Chad, that new guy and others claim they've directly experienced the reality of quattro. Yes. This is just too much, whined Dell. No, hear me out. We're Christians, right? We believe in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. None of these is identical to any other. They differ in various ways, while each being divine. Each is a God, but they're the same God. Well, that's what some Trinitarians say, but... Hear me out, interrupted Jimmy. Father, Son, and Spirit are different beings. None just is any other. And yet, they share the divine essence which makes them the same God. Now, for all we know, this quattro may share that same divine essence, making him that same God, too. But God sent Jesus, while quattro says he did no such thing. Sure, but by God there, you mean the Father, or maybe the Trinity. But anyway, any Trinitarian thinks there are differences between the sharers of the divine nature. The Son became incarnate, but the Father and Spirit didn't. So maybe, now Jimmy was getting excited, Quattro just wasn't involved with Abraham or Moses and didn't send Jesus because his mission within the divine economy was different. Each divine person has his own job. Perhaps Quattro's job is sending the prophet new guy and inspiring the writing of that Way It Is book. Chad looked pleased. You've got to be kidding me, declared Dell. You just met our new friend here and just found out about his religion, and you're willing to consider belief in a quaternity with this quattro as a fourth divine person? You have to admit, countered Jimmy, that the name seems rather providential. But don't some argue that there will be at most three divine persons, as three are all that are required for being perfectly loving? Yes, the famous analytic theologian Richard Swinburne argues that. But honestly, he's putting too much trust in human speculations, human intuitions. What we know is this. The Bible tells us about three divine persons, three beings within the Godhead. It never tells us that there are only three, at most three, or no more than three, does it? I don't recall that it does. Right. And recall again that God's nature is profoundly mysterious. There is just so much about God that we don't know. That's what we say, too, chimed Chad. We can't rule out, then, that this is one of those things previously unknown. 
I just can't take this seriously, insisted Dell. When I find out that Sissy and Chrissy are different women, it just follows from that that they're not the same wife. And when I found out that Yahweh and Quadro are different beings, it just follows that they're not the same God. So you say, shot Jimmy. I'm just applying common sense here. You're applying your speculative theories about God here. Pardon me if I don't claim to completely understand the divine nature. Jimmy, you're a smart guy, and I respect your knowledge of the Bible and theology. You're a good friend. Forgive me, but it seems to me like you're way out on the end of a theoretical limb here, not me. The point about God seems obvious. It seems obvious without any speculative theories about statues or the divine nature. Different being, different God. But you doubt it. Why? Because a few philosophers have questioned a general principle that being the same sort of thing requires being the same being? But don't you agree with me about the Chrissy and Sissy case? Yes. So then, only in the case of God you're open-minded, allowing that maybe different beings can be the same God? That's why when you find out that Quattro, assuming he's real, differs from Yahweh and so is not numerically the same as Yahweh, you're still open to there being the same God? Yes, bro, do you even Trinity? But Jimmy, not all Trinitarian theologians say that the Father, Son, and Spirit are the same God. Some think that neither is a God, but each is a part of, or anyhow mysteriously within the one God, which is the triune God. Get out. Who's your favorite apologist, Jimmy? Bill Craig. That's what he thinks. As he interprets the Bible, the Father, Son, and Spirit are divine, but not in the sense that implies being a God. Only the Trinity can be divine in that way. Even good apologists make mistakes. But it's not just him, Jimmy. I think Swinburne would agree, too, that the Father, Son, and Spirit are not the same God, though each of them and the Trinity, too, can be called God. What can I say? Some people trust too much in their own speculations. Sorry, but you're one of those people. Me, I go by the Bible. Father, Son, and Spirit are all divine, yes, in the way that means being a God, but there's only one God, so they must be the same God. But this doesn't rule out that this Quattro, too, is that same God. I'm pretty sure, Dell thought out loud, that some theologians would deny that the persons of the Trinity are different beings. Well, there's no helping them. It's obvious that ones who differ, like the Father and Son do, are not one and the same being. Chad nodded. Right, said Dell. but the Bible doesn't say that, does it? It doesn't need to. It's something we all know. It's part of common sense. But so is this claim, Jimmy. Different beings are not the same God. Jimmy thrust his finger at Dell. No, it's not. Chad again nodded. As I mentioned, some philosophers deny it. But Jimmy, some philosophers deny that change is real, or that human persons exist, or that any event ever causes any other event. Dell, I know that, but in this case, divine revelation makes us question what seems obvious to us. Right, agreed Chad. But divine revelation is one thing, and your views on the Trinity are another. Dell, divine revelation plainly says that Jesus and his Father are the same God. The Father and I are one. Chad added, I don't know about the Bible, but the way it is says that Quattro and Yahweh are the same God. That's why I'm so intrigued, replied Jimmy. Eventually, Jimmy and Chad entered into a long-term study of the way it is. Jimmy became convinced that Quattro was indeed the same God as Yahweh. 
This fourth divine person, he believed, had a complementary mission, which the way it is explained fairly clearly. And New Guy had truly revealed new things about God that Jesus had never mentioned. For his part, Dell remained recalcitrant, insisting that Yahweh and Quadro just couldn't be the same God, even when Jimmy teased him with Shakespeare. There are more divine persons, Dell, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Perhaps Dr. Anderson will have more to say about this. I don't know. I hope he does. But anyway, I thank him for his good and thoughtful and carefully argued response. When the Trinity's podcast returns, who gets the gold medal for having avoided this argument for the longest time? How did this challenge get started? I think in episode 124, I alluded to how this began. What happened was in 2014, I was looking at probably some YouTube videos from some of these Jesus is God apologists, and probably I was viewing something by Dr. David Wood. And so I wrote up this argument and I sent it to him with a friendly note. I said, Hey, I would like to argue about this off the record. What do you say about this? I know that you're a philosopher. You have a PhD in philosophy. I know that you can easily understand the concept of numerical identity, and you can understand premises two and four, which may trip up a few people, but not you, because you're a PhD in philosophy. So look, you're saying that Jesus is God, but then what do you say to this argument? I sent it to him on 12, 13, 14, a funny date, December 13th, 2014, and... Nothing. He ignores it. Doesn't care. Dr. Wood, you're not afraid of taunting would-be jihadis on YouTube? Why avoid this argument? It's a serious argument. Should be taken seriously. Seem like a serious guy. I think you need to have an answer to this. A couple of months ago, I had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Wood and his wife at a conference, and I asked him if he had a response. So it had been almost two years at that point. He was caught off guard. He didn't have much to say. He wasn't expecting to run into me. So I'm not going to tell you what he said. I'll just say this. I'm not sure that what he said to me was really his considered opinion. What he said seemed to imply that the argument is sound. So I sent him another friendly email shortly thereafter, after our short interaction. This is last fall, the end of 2016 and said, well, is that really your reply, that this argument is sound, so then you accept that Jesus is not a God? And... He ignored it. Now, maybe what he told me isn't his final answer. I think he owes us a final answer, though, because he's all over YouTube saying that Jesus is God. In other words, he's saying that Jesus is God himself. Okay, if Jesus is God himself, this implies that he is a God because God is a God. So then you have to think the conclusion of this argument is false. 
okay, if that's your view and not what you said in brief conversation with me, admittedly you weren't prepared for that, fine, kindly tell us which premise you deny and why. I wait your reply. So David Wood gets the credit for steadfastly ignoring this for over two years and deciding just not to think about it. I don't think that's a good policy. But of course, there are lots of Jesus is God apologists out there, and some of them are aware of the Trinity's podcast and the Trinity's blog. So here are some others. Sam Shamoon. Is the argument sound or not? Nabil Qureshi. Pretty sure you don't want to accept this argument, but then you need to deny a premise. Matt Slick. J. Wallace Warner. Ron Rhodes. Dr. Michael Heiser. Dr. Ravi Zacharias, Greg Kokel, Dr. Robert Bowman. Gentlemen, if you're going to go around saying that Jesus is God, and by that you mean that they're numerically one, the one just is the other, then I think you need to have an answer to this challenge. Otherwise, people shouldn't listen to what you're saying. At the time I record this, the blog post has 102 comments on it. I'm grateful for that. They're not all to the point. Uh, There is a long debate between a couple of commenters right in the middle of it, but I think a few of them are definitely worth mentioning. One is by a reader named Jonathan Healy. Forgive me if I'm mispronouncing the name. It's H-I-L-I. He says, Hi, Dale. Thanks for the intriguing thoughts. There are a couple of issues I have with this argument. The first is that premise one seems to equivocate on the term God when it should read Father. And because of this equivocation, the argument begs the question, which appears evident, I believe, in premises 4 through 5. The examples cited from the New Testament to substantiate this premise work fine if the substitution in terms is made. The first example is interesting, though. God is triune. Jesus is not triune. Therefore, Jesus is not God. This seems to confuse an essential property of the whole with the essential property of one part or aspect, in a Trinitarian sense, person. Jonathan, thanks for the comment. You're right that the term God in this argument, that is capital G-O-D, is ambiguous. The interesting thing is, as I explained in a follow-up post to this on Trinities, is that it should be sound either way. So you can take the word God in this argument, capital G-O-D, and substitute in the word Father, and everybody should accept this as a sound argument. That's what I claim. And if you want to substitute the Trinity for this, then if you're a Trinitarian, you should agree, I think, that it's a sound argument. You can also just substitute in the name Yahweh. So the premise one is Yahweh and Jesus differ. And then step three, therefore Yahweh and Jesus are two. Step eight, Yahweh is a God. Well, sure. And you'll still get the same conclusion that Jesus is not a God. So I consider it a virtue and not a vice that the term God is ambiguous. It's a virtue because... Really, it's three different valid arguments. You might even think that all three are sound. I wouldn't accept the argument as sound if you substitute in Trinity. Then step eight would say the Trinity is a God, and I don't think there is such a thing as a tripersonal God. But the Trinitarian, of course, if they substitute in the Trinity, they, I think, should accept this as sound. But again, people have different speculations on the Trinity. Some will deny one of the other premises. This argument is a tool to sharpen our thinking and to make our conversations actually get somewhere. Jonathan says, what if we give this argument? Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde differ. Things which differ are two. Therefore, Jekyll and Hyde are two. And he says, this isn't right. They seem to be numerically identical in substance, but not numerically identical in personhood. 
John Locke, I think, would say that about your Jekyll and Hyde argument. But look, the plot of that little novel, uh, Jekyll and Hyde, is that Jekyll and Hyde are supposed to be numerically the same being. That's why after Hyde does his dirty deeds done dirt cheap, Dr. Jekyll remembers it. He remembers it because it was him who did it. So Jekyll and Hyde do look different. That's right. But this doesn't involve one being being and not being the same way at the same time. When he's in Hyde mode, Dr. Jekyll is ugly and wicked and does dastardly deeds. When that same person is in Dr. Jekyll mode, then he's living like a reputable doctor and he looks different and so on. So no, it's, it's not supposed to be two persons really in the sense of two selves, two beings. It's supposed to be the same person and he's just unleashing some of his desires, which turns him into this other character, so to speak. Anyway, this doesn't involve a counterexample to my premise, too, that things which differ are two. Jekyll and Hyde differ, but it's at different times, right? So it's just one thing changing. Jekyll, he takes the potion, he gets ugly and mean. Now, now we call him Hyde, but it's the same guy, right? It's the same being. Good question, though. Another reply is by someone named Steve Bruckner or Bruckner. Sorry if I mangled that. He says, Dale, I didn't see a definition of the Trinity in your challenge. I will provide one to help in solving this issue. Okay, but then he does and it doesn't help. He just takes off the shelf Trinitarian language. They're all distinct persons. Each is God. There's only one God. And right, so which premise does that show is false here? He doesn't seem to know. He doesn't seem to say. Sorry, it's a standard script that the Trinity formulas that come from the late 300s are supposed to make everything work out somehow. They don't seem to help with this argument. If you think they do, please explain to us why a certain premise is shown to be false. Another commenter named Damien Spillane says this, Hi Dale, many thanks for your insightful podcast. I'm a Trinitarian and my response would be to say that I think your argument is sound. But to say instead that Jesus and the Father are one, leaving aside the Holy Spirit, with each member existing under something like different modes of presentation, each of the first two members of the Trinity necessarily occupy a two-place relationship with each other. So the Father is revealed through, and the Son is determined by. In this sense, they are two beings with separate existence conditions, but have being in the Phrygian unsaturated sense. So following Frege again, we can say both that God is one and God is three. The numerical operator is relative in this sense. I'm not proposing a Geech van Inwagen type of relative identity thesis, but this also uniquely resolves the Old Testament passages where single God is referred to as a personal being. If the Son is in the image of the Father, something like an isomorphism, which means the Son reveals the Father, and the Father is in an indeterminate relationship with the Son, that is, the Father causes the Son in some way and dictates his ministry. This explains how precisely one God can be more than one and yet uniquely personal. Well, Damien, I'm not sure I understand your point. Um, I'm not sure about the Phrygian points, honestly. So you say the argument is sound, so then you're granting that the Father and Son are not identical. It sounds like you want to say that father and son are two different modes of one being. So they're not the same being, they're two different things, but the things that they are are modes. And so if they're modes, then it would be true that the son is not a god. A god is not a mode. A god is a being. 
So yeah, I think it is coherent for that type of Trinitarian to accept this argument as sound. God and Jesus are not going to be the same being in your view, but Jesus is not a being at all in your view. I think that's a problem for Christology, but I think as far as your basic view of the Trinity, I think you can accept this argument as sound. Moving on. Benjamin Scott has an interesting comment. He says in part, I've been engaging with a few people just on YouTube discussions, all of whom have asserted that the Trinity is easy for them to understand. One thing that is really popping out to me tonight as I have interacted with them is the continuous appeal they give to the Trinity is spiritually discerned. I got that from three separate people. The Trinity is supposedly easy for them to understand because they are spiritually enlightened. Apparently, I have a carnal mind because I think arguments like the one you made above are valid and sound. Again, you can be certain kinds of Trinitarian. You can accept certain Trinity theories, I think, and say that this argument is sound. But yeah, if somebody responded to the argument by just informing you of how doggone spiritual they are, and so yeah, they just know that Jesus is a God, they just spiritually discern this like the spiritual person they are, that's kind of like a Gnostic stance, you know? They think they're a spiritual elite that has this special knowledge that maybe can't be said in words. Yeah, look, Christian doctrine is supposed to be based on plain statements of Jesus and the apostles. It isn't supposed to be a secret message that only certain people can understand. I do think being saved makes a difference. Uh, it makes an epistemic difference. But I think you should be suspicious of these kinds of claims when we're talking about what's contradictory. Another comment is from Idaho Doc. First part of it is this. I think the argument you present is correct from a classical logic perspective, but unsound on many levels. I think from the get-go we are facing a serious category error. You are using Boolean logic from our dimensionally limited perspective to disprove the deity of Jesus. Premise 4 presupposes our limited experience in which premise 4 is generally true, but not necessarily universally true. By universally, I mean to include the dimensionality where God lives— as well as our limited space-time where the apostles encountered Jesus as a man. The argument against this exists as an analogy when comparing plane geometry to spherical geometry. In plane geometry, the sum of angles cannot exceed 180 degrees, but a spherical triangle's sum of angles can vary between pi and three times pi radians. Yet, we are talking triangles. I'm not sure that we are. Uh, look, this is highfalutin speculative stuff. I'm not exactly sure why these geometrical examples are supposed to show that four can be false. I don't really see why gesturing at other dimensions helps. He continues, Likewise, the concept of identity would seem to vary according to the complexity of the object and the dimensional perspective of the viewer. Nope. If that's what you're thinking, you're not thinking about the right concept. I'm not sure how else to explain it. You might want to search the blog post on Trinities for the word identity and read some of the posts that I've put there. He continues, Theologians are left with philosophically unsatisfying terms, such as Father, Son, and Spirit, sharing an identical essence while being unique in personality. From the latter statement, premise four is valid. I think he means to say that it's true. If they share an essence, then it's going to be true. From the former statement, it is invalid. I think he means to say false. 
well, look, my friend, premise four is either true or false. Which is it? Since the argument and conclusion are unnecessarily reductionist. <laughs> I don't understand the response here. It ends with giving a kick to human philosophy. Look, where's the human philosophy here? Where's the premise that presupposes a controversial theory? The idea of numerical sameness is just a rock bottom level part of our conceptual abilities. We know the terms God and Jesus and that they refer. We know that things which differ can't be the same thing. If we're talking about one time, we know that to be the same God, you have to be the same being. Right. Where's the problematic philosophy here? Problematic speculations would be like this appeal you're making to other unknown dimensions and so on. And it's not even clear that those are relevant. Then he goes on a long tear describing what Dr. Michael Heiser claims is compelling evidence for Jewish binitarianism. So this is the view that God was long viewed as multipersonal by the Jews. And so when the Trinity came along, they think in the first century, oh yeah, well, we're familiar with a multipersonal God. Maybe it's three and not two. But of course, Philo has three, and sometimes he talks about more powers of God than that. Anyway, I don't want to get into the whole thing with Dr. Heiser. I would love to interact more with him sometime about this Jewish binitarianism business. I think there are some serious problems there, to put it nicely. Toward the end of his long comment, he says, perhaps it simply comes down to faith, faith in the Bible and its revelation. Based on these and other biblical passages, there is a large amount of paradoxical declaration. If one strains too hard against it, one is in danger of disparaging the text itself. That is a place where I would never want to go. Idaho Doc, I don't want to go there either. But one thing you need to see is that attributing apparent contradictions to the Bible is uncharitable. You're supposing that those writers were confused. What we normally do when we come across an apparently contradictory interpretation of the Bible is we say, oops, I must have messed up there. That can't be right. That can't be what this person is saying. This guy isn't confused, is he? Let me see if I can come up with a better interpretation. Now, these are human authors. Maybe sometimes they're confused, but it looks like we need to search around and see if there's an available interpretation of what they said. Not just something we came up with, but something that makes sense of what they say and what they don't say, and something that fits into their context, into their time and their place. We don't want to jump to saying that they're all seemingly contradicting themselves all the time. That is not how we want our words to be interpreted. That's not how we interpret anybody, especially someone we think is smart. If we're going to say this book is divinely inspired, and that's my view, we don't want to say that the author is pushing confusions constantly, right? Okay, so paradoxical interpretations are not humble. They're the opposite. You're boldly foisting nonsense onto the scriptures. We dare not do that, I suggest. At least it should be a very last resort. When the Trinity's podcast returns, a comment from a Unitarian listener.
Another comment is from David Kemble Cook. David's familiar to me from online. He's a very smart and informed Unitarian Christian. He's actually authored a book on the Trinity. He's a very uh, dogged but polite arguer. He's from the UK. He says, Hi, Dale. Surely your premise four is exactly where the sophisticated Trinitarian will disagree, is it not? They would say that the Father and Son are the same God, even though they differ from each other. Then he goes on to suggest, well, aren't they going to appeal to the idea of relative identity? Yes, some of them are. And part of my purpose in offering this argument is to drive people towards the idea that the Trinity requires relative identity. The reason I want to do this is because I'm convinced that a relative identity approach to the Trinity is flatly incompatible with Scripture. So we can just then go back to a clear scriptural basis for arguing. In brief, the Bible says that the Father is Jesus' God. And this is incompatible with there being the same God. Just conceptually, no God is God over himself. The God of relation, that is, the God over relation, has to be non-reflexive. If X is the God of Y, that is to say the God over Y, then X can't be Y. No God is the God over himself. The New Testament says that the Father is Jesus' God. It says this repeatedly, about half a dozen times it says or implies this. Okay, well, they can't be the same God then. So even if you grant this metaphysical thesis of the relativity of identity, you run straight up against the Bible. The interesting thing is that most Christian philosophers slash analytic theologians, most of them do not deny four. Most of them agree with me that four is true and even self-evident. It's only a small minority, although they're highly sophisticated people, as you mentioned, who deny four. This is one of the big divides in the Trinity camp. Another comment is by me. I can't help point this one out. I give a link to a post on Triablog by the Reformed brawler Steve Hayes, and I say that he takes what is surely the least plausible way out, which is denying two, that things which differ are two. I say there are three lessons you can take from this faceplant. First, some Christians influenced by recent apologetics really do insist on the falsity of three, that is, they insist that Jesus and God are numerically identical. Steve Hayes is an illustration of this. Second, not even the most pugilistic Reformed brawler denies one. He can't deny that Jesus and God differ. This is explicitly said by his own theology. Okay, but you don't want three, which says that they are two, so you have to deny that things which differ are two, which is crazy. I say, this is a shameful mythology, hatred of reason, that's quite out of place in a disciple's life. As James says, chapter 3, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield. I continue, when this wisdom is shown that its theory entails that 3 plus 3 is 7, or just something obviously absurd, it says, oh goodness, I need to fix something then. And then peaceful discussion proceeds. In contrast, James says, earthly, unspiritual, devilish, pseudo-wisdom will attack you for your good deed and tell you that you're simply bad and stupid for not agreeing that 3 plus 3 is 7. There are other comments, some of them really good, some of them not so much to the point. I want to thank everybody for them. Next time you encounter a Jesus is God apologist on YouTube or online or in person, ask them at least about steps one through three of this argument. Ask them, do you think Jesus and God differ in any way? Hopefully they'll say yes. Do you agree that things which differ are two? 
In other words, that a thing can't differ from itself? Hopefully they'll say yes. Okay, well then, your view is that Jesus and God are not numerically identical, right? Okay, but if you go that far, why do you constantly go around saying that Jesus is God? And you don't parse this or explain it as we're just saying that he's divine in some sense, not necessarily the same sense as the one God, or that he's got a divine nature, something like that. When you say only God can do something, and then you say Jesus does that, it looks like you're saying that Jesus just is God, like they're numerically one. Of course, that's not what most of the early Christians thought. Go to Trinities and search for posts and podcasts about Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Origen. They don't think that Jesus is God himself. They everywhere distinguish Jesus from God. As the Father who's the one God, they think Jesus is divine, but not in the same way that God is divine. They think there are differences, and there are differences regarding divinity even. Next week, more on these uncharitable readings of the Bible, which foist contradictions upon the scriptural authors. These are readings on which Jesus just is God himself, and, oh, by the way, the two of them are different. That is, there has been some one time at which they've been different. That, I suggest, is junk exegesis. Next week, we'll take out some of the garbage. We got a new review in the iTunes store for the U.S. And it's a little bit embarrassing, but I'm going to read it anyway. It's from a user named Gaza Dude Man. This person gives us five stars, gives us the subject line, be a Berean. They say, Dale Tuggy has the perfect voice <clears throat> and temperament to do a podcast. Objective, great interviews, even with those he disagrees with, allows the guests to articulate their position and thought-provoking topics. Try listening for yourself, and if you do disagree, go to the scriptures and do your own research. Prepare to be enlightened, whether you agree or disagree. Heiser, Lycona, Bowman, Hurtado, and many others are mentioned and or interviewed. Get that Bible opened. Thanks a lot for the review. Really appreciate it. We always love to get a new honest rating and review in the iTunes store for any country, so please consider doing that. I'd also like to say thanks to Kevin from Texas for his donation through PayPal. Thank you, Kevin. Really appreciate it. I'm very glad that the podcast has been helpful to you, and I hope that it will continue to be. I also wanted to mention a comment by Sarah on a recent blog post. She says, Excellent podcast and extra points for finding that Trinity Schminity song. Your analysis of White's case was spot on, and I, for one, would pay money to see a tuggy White debate. It would certainly remedy his apparent boredom in trotting out the same weak and often misleading arguments ad infinitum. I'd especially love to see a debate in which terms like person, being, and deity are defined up front by each interlocutor. Thanks so much for all the effort you have invested in your podcast and website. It is paying dividends for the kingdom. Thanks a lot, Sarah. I haven't heard from Dr. White. I hope that maybe I will in the coming months. Uh, can't hurry a person on a thing like this. I have no idea if he's willing or not. But obviously the offer stands. If you enjoyed this episode of the Trinity's podcast, please share on social media like Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest.
for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.